And I do realize it's not Pentecost yet, so even though those texts are often used for Pentecost, but they appealed to me when I was looking to speak today, to what I wanted to speak today. Um, and I also was aware that I needed to create a shorter sermon because of our milestone celebration. So again, I was thinking, how can I do this? Say something meaningful, hopefully. Um, so, the sermon is short, but hopefully not meaningful to you. Um, and short, as you know, is always a little bit more difficult to accomplish than long. And I felt a kind of urgency of there was a push behind trying to make this short, um, which fits the topic on the brink. I feel that we are on the brink, probably on the brink of everything, as Quaker Palmer, Parker Palmer wrote. The climate crisis is staring us in the face relentlessly, shaking us, yelling at us, and yet, Collectively, we continue to ignore the urgency due to a plethora of factors. Here at Rockway, I believe, we know many facts, know the destruction that has been ongoing, and we are aware of the looming date of 2030, the watershed year of no return. So, how do I speak about this climate crisis without repeating the obvious? I, have, I tend to turn to literature. When I searched the web for poetry on climate crisis, I saw dozens upon dozens of poems published in the last two decades alone that highlight the emergency in which we find ourselves right now. The contemporary American poet Jane Hirschfield writes, when his ship first came to Australia, Cook wrote, the natives continued fishing without looking up, unable, it seems, to fear what was too large to be comprehended. It appears we have been behaving in the same manner for half a century now, and no drastic measures have been taken globally to mitigate the current crisis. So I turn to another poem, Miko Harvey's poem, Grace Interrupted, which begins like this. There once was a planet who was both sick and beautiful. Chemicals rode through her that she did not put there. Animals drowned in her eyeballs that she did not put there. Animals she could not warn against fall, falling in because she was of them, not separable from them. Define sick, the atmosphere asked. So she tried. She made a whale on fire, somehow still swimming and alive. See, she said, like that, kind of. But the atmosphere did not understand this, so the planet progressed in her argument. Is this what we have been doing? By trying, often haphazardly and with mixed agendas, to respond to something we don't fully comprehend, we end up hurting somebody or something else in the process and hurdle down the road of destruction in the process. We fumble and stumble, we persistently keep our blinders on, 
and yes, partially because we need them to maintain life and hope, but also because they conveniently prevent us from having to take more action than might be comfortable for us. I wonder how shifting our lifestyles towards more collaborative, intentional, and accountable communities would perhaps help us move into sustainable living. Joy Harjo, a member of the Muskoki Creek Nation, wrote recently, once the world was perfect and we were happy in that world, then we took it for granted. Discontent began a small rumble in the earthly mind. Then doubt pushed through with its spiked head. And once doubt ruptured the web, all manner of demon thoughts jumped through. We destroyed the world we had been given for inspiration, for life. Each stone of jealousy, each stone of fear, greed, envy, and hatred put out the light. No one was without a stone in his or her hand. There we were, right back where we started. We were bumping into each other in the dark. And now we had no place to live since we don't know how to live with each other. Then one of the stumbling ones took pity on another and shared a blanket. A, stark, a spark of kindness made a light. The light made an opening in the darkness. Everyone worked together to make a ladder. A wind clan person climbed out first into the next world. And then the other clans, the children of those clans, their children, and their children all the way through time to now, into this morning light, to you. This notion of sharing, working together, supporting one another in crucial ways reminds me of a suggestion that Jennifer Schrock, whom we mentioned this morning, one of the driving forces behind the Mennonite Creation Care Network made. The idea that we might want to contemplate what one of our central rituals, sharing communion, can tell us about creating accountable communities. Hmm, you might wonder what sharing, communi sharing communities and climate crisis, what's the connection? What are we actually commemorating when we accept the token meal of communion? It certainly was at the time, and hopefully still is, a spirit-inspired act of defiance against the dominant world order in its economic structures. Communion announces that radical sharing across lines of race, class, and gender are possible, and that when we do that, Jesus Christ is present among us in a powerful way, as Jennifer Schrock suggests. What did Jesus request that his followers break? Why did Jesus request that his followers break bread together? Do this in remembrance of me at the Last Supper. The Lord's Supper was a way of feeding everyone physically and spiritually then at a time when most people lived barely at a subsistence level. Just after Peter's impassionate altar call concludes in Acts 2.41, which Lewis just read, we hear about sharing communal meals and redistribution of wealth. In the passage of Acts 4, 
we learn that no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. There was no needy person among them for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Believers are relinquishing possessions so that no one is in need. The passages in Acts illustrate what happens when the Holy Spirit blows. People who don't speak the same language manage to understand each other and everyone has enough to eat. This is the vision we commemorate each time we come together around the communion table. A few weeks ago, when we were sitting in circle for reflections on our adult education hour, several of you asked the question, so what are we individually and collectively as a faith community willing to give up to sacrifice? We may not need to sell all our possessions and distribute those, but what is the equivalent exercise that we might want to do. Matthew 25, 31 to 46 paints a stark picture of what happens when we do or do not take care of the stranger, the needy, hungry, and thirsty. It's the part in in Matthew which we didn't read. Um, The the judgment of the nations is the section called, um, where Jesus separates the goats and the, the goats, us into goats and sheep, depending on whether we do the righteous act or not. So how do we judge who we might want to help? Who gets what? How do we justify our selective approach to support one another? When are we the sheep that are recognizing, that are doing things even though they don't recognize who they might do it for? Um, And when are we the goat? I'm certain that these stories also apply to all aspects of creation. The birds, the trees, the land, the water, the insects, and every other component of this planet Earth we call home. But we draw lines. What are, what and who are our priorities of care? We know we cannot do it alone. I know there are so many among us here who engage in doing our best to live consciously, to eat locally, to reduce, to recycle, to bike and walk instead of driving the car, and so much more. And yet, as we find ourselves on the brink right now, that is definitely not sufficient. We need to collaborate and support one another to break our addiction to the lifestyle we claim to have earned or perhaps deserve. How often do we give into our more immediate impulse instead of postponing gratification for a better reward way down in the future that we might not know anymore? I believe it's necessary to face our personal and collective addictions that have moved us to the brink of this climate crisis. We must ask ourselves how to overcome our sense of feeling powerless. We must move toward recognizing the harm we have caused and make amends. But most importantly, we must commit to action beyond our own small spheres 
We must commit to helping others along the way. This process requires humility, repentance, confession, and grace. As Jesus said, choosing his way requires letting some things go and leaving some people behind, but there's also much to gain. Are we ready to face the failings of our lifestyles and come together in communion and community to attend to mutual needs and to commit to concrete actions and sacrifice? I'm reminded of Matthew 25, again, verse 40, which says, truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Who and what are the least members of our planet Earth family? When are we sheep or goat? What price are we willing and able to pay, either now or later? What concretely are we at Rockway Mennonite Church ready to sacrifice? Are we displaying the courage needed to move away from the brink of everything, I wonder? I'd like to leave you with Amelia Earhart's words on courage. Courage is the price which life exacts for granting peace. The soul that knows it not, know no release from little things knows not the livid loneliness of fear, nor mountain heights where bitter joy can hear the sound of wings. How can life grant us boon of living, compensate for dull gray ugliness and pregnant hate, unless we dare the soul's dominion? Each time we make a jo choice, we pay with courage to behold resistless day and count it fair. <laughs>